This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. This is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. And Caroline, today we are talking about some fine young cannibals. Or, uh... Cannibals of varying ages, probably. Fine old cannibals. (laughs) Is that them? Yeah, that's fine young cannibals, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so this week's episode is a bit of a follow-up to our sixth episode, way back when, and that was The Lost Colony of Roanoke. In that episode, we explored the first attempt by the English to establish a colony in North America at Roanoke, Virginia. Oh, how did that go? Well, the the entire colony mysteriously disappeared, so I guess not well. Ah. (laughs) But the next, nothing bad happened at the next settlement. Well, uh, the colony of Jamestown, which was the next settlement, we also mentioned that on the episode, um, they ended up making good on that attempt and becoming the first permanent English settlement in America. Hmm. In this episode, we'll discuss how the early days in Jamestown were possibly just as perilous as the final days in Roanoke, and how these desperate times led to some of the most desperate measures one could ever consider. You mean cannibalism, right? I I feel like you mean cannibalism. Well, you spoiled it up top, Sean. Yeah. Well, the title spoiled it up top. <laughs> yeah, it was cannibalism. <laughs> so first, because you know me, we're going to start with some backstory. I know you. A little, yeah. Sir Walter Raleigh had been charged by Queen Elizabeth I to establish a settlement in North America. Uh, the Virgin Queen? That's why it's called Virginia, yeah. He tried twice to send colonies to the Roanoke, Virginia area, which ended with colony leader John White being the only survivor after leaving Roanoke for several years to try and bring back much-needed supplies from England. How many times did he try to colonize Queen Elizabeth? (laughs) Walter Raleigh? Yeah. There are some tales told out of school, for sure. By the early 1600s, England was gearing up to try again. And this is where the Jamestown colony came in. The Virginia Company of London, or the London Company, sent an expedition to establish a settlement within the existing Virginia colony in December 1606. By this point, Queen Elizabeth had died and been succeeded by King James, her Scottish cousin. I don't, I don't know anything about him, so I have, I have nothing to say about that. Uh, he gave his name to Jamestown, obviously, uh, the King James Bible. Um, no, that's James II. You sure? I thought so. Maybe. I thought it was him. He was also a patron of Shakespeare, stuff like that. Okay. 
James likely saw the promise in the new land and wanted to achieve success where Elizabeth couldn't, so he approved the expedition, led by three ships, the largest, Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery. And the Santa Maria, (laughs) and the, yes, of course, I learned all this in school. (laughs) The ships left London with 105 men and boys, I don't know why they specified boys as well, and 39 crew members, no women or girls among them. Right. Well, boys, because they're not able-bodied, right? I guess. In April 1607, the ships reached the Spanish colony of Puerto Rico, and they loaded up on provisions for the rest of their journey. Later that month, they reached the southern edge of the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, having lost only one passenger of the original 105 during the long voyage. So they stop in Puerto Rico. They get some sugar, indigo, (laughs) rum. Sure. Silver. Mostly food and supplies. Now, unfortunately for the colonists, it was a bad time to be settling the New World. Dennis Blanton, director of the Center for Archaeological Research at the College of William and Mary, told National Parks Magazine that, quote, if the English had tried to find a worse time to launch their settlement in the New World, they could not have done so. The Jamestown settlement was plagued by the driest seven-year episode in 700 and 70 years. Oh, my God. You couldn't grow any crops. Oh, we laughed about this in the um, <laughs> Roanoke episode, didn't we? Right. Well, in the 770 years, that drought was the most severe during the settlement years at Jamestown and a couple decades before at Roanoke. Mm-hmm. Those were like the two worst times. Classic. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the drama started almost immediately after landing in Virginia. Oh, spill the tea, honey. I'm a messy (laughs) bitch who lives for drama. You really are. During the voyage, Captain John Smith, the same one we know from Pocahontas. Yeah, okay. Mel Gibson with the blonde hair. Very fictionalized. Very fictionalized. Uh, He was charged with mutiny on the voyage over. Smith had been incarcerated for the rest of the trip and was scheduled to be hanged upon reaching their destination. It's weird that that doesn't get into the um, Disney adaptation. Right. Like where he's been clapped in irons, he's starving to death after his uh, two-month voyage at sea. Yeah, you know, they have to keep it to a a trim 90 minutes. This is because he murdered a man while trying to take violent control of the ship on the way. I don't know if he murdered any. I don't think he murdered anyone, but he was mutinous. After reaching Virginia, the men opened the sealed orders sent to them from the Virginia Company of London. Oh, I don't care for that. Which named John Smith as a member of the governing council. Awkward. (laughs) Oh, this is awkward. So he was freed by ship captain Newport, and they all headed out to seek an inland site for their settlement, also in accordance with the orders. Smith presumably also didn't know he was a member of the governing council until they opened those orders? Either that or it was a situation where he was like, I'm part of the council, I swear. And they're like, we're going to hang you anyway. Why didn't they open the orders before? Like, why did they have to be sealed until they arrived in the new world? I assume it's so it doesn't cause any problems during the voyage. Because the orders are like, you got ha ha, you guys, this place you're going sucks. Good well, luck not dying. No, but the council is like less than 10 of the guys. So if possibly if they'd known ahead of time, there would have been more mutiny. I was going to say, John God, Smith. God forbid there could have been a mutiny on board the <laughs> ship. He was trying, but it didn't work. 
They sailed around the bay and upstream along the James River and eventually chose what would be known as Jamestown Island for their settlement. And obviously, these were both named for King James. The island had excellent visibility up and down the James River and was far enough inland to minimize the potential of contact with enemy ships. So they're trying to be strategic here. The water around the island was deep enough to anchor the ships, but they could still easily depart if necessary. Importantly, the island also wasn't currently occupied by the Virginia Indians, mostly affiliated with the Powhatan or Powhatan. Powhatan is how I've always heard, heard that, but that's from white people, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, Powhatan uh, Confederacy, and this is a group that you may also know from Pocahontas or you know history. But well, Powhatan is the chief. He's the name chief of uh, that's the name of po- Pocahontas's dad. Mm-hmm. After they found their home base here, uh, the initial fort was constructed. Many of the original settlers were upper-class gentlemen, not well-suited to manual labor. This is the part where they're all like, dig a dig a dig Yeah, except they're like, I don't want to dig. I broke a nail! I broke another nail! And this kind of had happened in the first Roanoke Mr. Smith! Mr. Smith, I broke another nail! So this has kind of happened in the first Roanoke group. They didn't really learn a ton from those mistakes, apparently. The settlers were attacked less than two weeks after their arrival by the Paspahig Indians, uh, and the natives killed one man and wounded wounded 11 more. Was this just a raid, like, to steal some stuff? Um, I'm not sure of the motives, but I assume it's like, oh, new white people here. That's probably not going to be a great thing. <laughs> and I they mean, were right. They were not wrong. <laughs> In late June, Captain Newport sailed back to London on the Susan Constant with a load of pyrite, which unfortunately is fool's gold. gold. Uh, They thought it was precious real gold, I think. Hilarious. Yeah. So they were fools. Yes. By definition. Yes. Uh, And he brought some other supposedly precious minerals, leaving behind the 103 surviving colonists. Those colonists were beginning to find that the reason the island hadn't been occupied was because of its swampy nature and limited hunting, along with a marshy area that was infested with malaria-carrying mosquitoes. Great! And also, you can't grow anything. Yeah, so... Because despite this being a swamp, it is bone dry. So if the people that have um, lived on this land for... God knows how long don't live there. That might be a good hint, but they probably thought they knew better because white guys. Um, what are all those? What are all those dumb natives uh, doing? Look at this, this is nice island over here. Stupid. What these guys didn't see this? Drinking the contaminated waters caused deaths from salt wa- salt water poisoning and dysentery. I mean those those guys have probably been in this country for like ten, fifteen years, right? How they miss this? Ridiculous. <laughs> Eventually, 135 settlers would die from these issues. Newport came to and from the colony twice within the next year and a half to bring more supplies. Got the hell out of there before he could die of malaria. (laughs) The first supply mission brought insufficient provisions, but another 70 colonists. What? That's the opposite of what they need. Yeah, that's going to keep happening. So put a pin in that. Shortly after this, the fort burned down and had to be rebuilt. 
In October 1608, the second supply mission arrived with 70 more settlers, including the wife of Thomas Thomas Forrest Esquire and Anne Burris, her maid. Great. So they'll eat some supplies. (laughs) What supplies did the supply run bring? Well, I just wanted to note, Sean, that those two women were the first known to have come to the Jamestown colony. um, First women. Yes, from England. Also included in the second supply were some of the first non-English settlers due to the active recruitment of skilled craftsmen and also some industry specialists like builders and things like that. Um, oh, so up until this point, they were just, what, slapping mud bricks on top of each other? They, they just well, have no these idea. Are, these are just professionals. I mean, they had a fort which burned down, so obviously did something wrong there. Um, but now I think they imported like a bunch of Dutch guys that were really good at this stuff. They had all different types. Oh, yeah, we will build it before it. I can't do a Dutch accent. What was that? I wanted to do Dutch, but it sounded like a... Like a Pikmin, I think. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> so so they're, they're trying to get started. John Smith continued to explore the area around the Chesapeake Bay and got into some hot water with the Powhatan Indians. Literally, like they were cooking him in a big pot Bugs Bunny style? No, but he was captured and a whole drama unfolded that you may know as the basis for Pocahontas, again, but it was very, very heavily changed from reality. Not a documentary, Pocahontas. Were they going to execute him and did the little girl who was 13 in real life? He said she did. Okay. He said she threw herself on him to prevent the execution. Yeah. And then he... She probably wasn't involved. And then she married a different... English settler? Yes, which we will mention um, quickly later. John Smith made it back in 1608 from this whole thing. He did survive, as in the film, not in the same way. And he wrote about his experiences as well as his explorations. The Virginia Company of London was beginning to get frustrated because they weren't reaping rich rewards from the settling of the New World as of yet. But they did end up sending the third supply mission in June 1609. This was by far the most well-equipped supply so far with a fleet of eight ships led by Captain Newport. Mm -hmm. So he was like, this time we got to make sure we got some stuff. I'm taking them myself. (laughs) Exactly. Well, he's do everything yourself. He's old hat at this by now. Unfortunately, by the time the much-delayed third supply would arrive in Jamestown, the settlers there had encountered what would become America's first horror, the starving time, and the main subject of this episode. The starving time. I know. And that, that's like the name of the Wikipedia page. It's known as that. That's so a not great. Good name for a horror movie. Yeah. Well, this, this story is a horror movie. The colonists had never planned to grow all their own food. This seems crazy, but it's true. So what was the what was the plan? Well, what they had yeah, planned... Yeah, well, when we run out, we'll just go to Walmart and buy some more. They had planned on depending on trade with the local native tribes to supply them with enough food between the periodic arrivals of supply ships from England. So from previous expeditions, they already knew there were people here. They that- knew it, but I don't know why they assumed this, because... They probably thought at this time the people of Roanoke had been murdered by the same by natives? the same people. Like why? What? What is your strategy here? I don't know. 
But that's really it. And these were all a bunch of rich guys coming over. Well, they have to trade with us eventually. We're white. Yeah. In 1609, a drought began, which caused their already limited farming activities to produce even less crops than usual. They'd been counting on the third supply, but it had been delayed due to a major hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean, and the flagship was shipwrecked at Bermuda, separated from the other ships. Eventually, the other seven ships of the third supply did arrive, but most of the food... Oh, this is so... Most of the food and supplies were on the flagship, which had been shipwrecked and were not, was not with them. What was the point of the other eight ships? Were the they other just seven smaller ships, ships? They were smaller and they had people. They figured we just keep populating this place and it'll eventually work out. Because eventually we're going to start growing a little bit of food and we need to make sure there's not enough of that to go around. Yep. So James, At least, hey, we're bringing in more people to eat later when we're starving. Well, I don't think that was the plan, but it became the plan. Jamestown got an influx of seven ships worth of new colonists and barely any extra food to help their already strained supplies. This ended up being the perfect storm for a starving time. The, the, the colony is already super hungry, right? So these colonists are getting off the boat and they're like, oh, guys, we don't have as many supplies as we were hoping. And uh, they just look cartoon style, like a steak stepping off the boat, like a big fried chicken leg. <laughs> they weren't quite starving yet, but they were on rations and so, uh, it wasn't going great so far. I guess it's a shame Captain Newport took all the supplies for himself, huh? <laughs> Compounding this issue was that John Smith had been injured in an August 1609 mysterious gunpowder explosion, uh, and he had to return to England for medical attention in October. Classic mysterious gunpowder explosion. Is there any juice there, or was it like um, a, a he plot? wasn't he wasn't well liked? So some people speculate that it might have been purposeful to try and kill him. Why wasn't he well liked? Everyone's like, was it like a, this guy takes all the glory kind of thing? I'm sure that's part of it. And he also had them on strict rations and um, he was in charge at the time. So people were probably blaming him for things and the rations were a good idea, um, which they would soon find out. But I think in the moment they were just pissed that they couldn't eat uh, a lot. And John, I think you, yes, you did tell us the story of the Powhatans and the execution, I think just about a thousand times at this point. So Mm -hmm. give it a rest. Smith was now an ally of the Powhatan Indians and had been negotiating trades for food. But after his departure, Chief Powhatan severely curtailed the trade um, because his alliance was really just with John Smith. It wasn't with the idea of Jamestown. Now, Powhatan even used the prospect of trading for corn to betray an expedition led by Smith's successor, John Ratcliffe, who was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered. By Powhatan and his people? Mm-hmm. No Pocahontas to jump in there, huh? I, I think she wasn't feeling it at the time. The natives, understandably so, had had their own struggles with the drought that year, and they weren't exactly feeling charitable to those actively taking over their lands. So things were Hold already on. The grim. white people are just out on Malaria Island. They're not taking any land that the natives want. They're just going to expand, Sean, and they know that. So things are already grim when the, the winter set in in late 
1609. And they were only getting grimmer, which we'll find out after the break. (gasps) Break! Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? Or solve a horrific case? (laughs) Hi, everybody. When you join Hunt a Killer, you receive a box full of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer so you can escape with the answers you need. And I... Hope you do escape. Input our code Scary Squad 20 for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at huntakiller.com and find out if you have the guts to hunt a killer. The guts! That's the code Scary Squad 20, S C A R Y S Q U A D 20 for 20% off at huntakiller.com. www.huntakiller.com. Hunt a killer. Join the hunt today. Welcome back. When last we left you, the very first English settlement in the United... Well, not States yet. In uh, the New World. Had just been established, and after three supply runs, things still weren't going well, Carrie. Which leads us right into something charmingly called... (laughs) The starving time. Mm-hmm. Winter 1609 to 1610. A drought has left the Jamestown settlers, numbering around 500 now, with much less crops than even even their meager expectations had allowed. Right. And their plan was, oh, we're just going to <laughs> hope people give us stuff after Trade. we arrive. Yeah. John Smith was forced to return to England for emergency injury treatment, and this cut off their expected valuable trade with the Powhatan tribe. Seven of eight of the third supply ships had arrived from England, bringing little more than a ton of additional mouths to feed. And now, being winter, there was little hope in growing more for the months ahead. There's not a lot of written testimony about the starving time. Um, Is that because everyone involved in this died? (laughs) A lot did, uh, but it's between that and um, just them spending all their time trying not to die. But this is what we know, partially from a true relation on the events of the starving time by the colony's leader in Smith's absence, George Percy. Do we have any reason to believe Percy? This is only because the previous leader was murdered when he went to go try to trade with the Powhatans, right? Mm -hmm. He was one of the council. George Percy. So they're all picking from this original council still. So does Percy have any reason to lie? No. All right. No. Um, If anything, to just make himself look better. And uh, he doesn't because things are effed up. So Uh, 
Percy wrote that, quote, Indians killed as fast without the fort as famine and pestilence did within. Powhatan had directed his tribesmen to plunder any colonists or livestock found outside the fort, but even so, by the time the hunger desperation had begun, some colonists had started wandering the woods looking for literally anything they could eat, like snakes or rats or roots. All fine. All totally fine. You could do root potatoes or roots. Give me some root fries. Often, though, this ended with their deaths anyway, usually at the hands of the local Native Americans. Or what would become known as the local Native Americans. Hey, those are my roots, pal. (laughs) Inside the fort, they were doing anything they could to survive, knowing that they couldn't really go out and forage unless completely desperate. They ate the leather from their own boots and belts, which is much like in the case of the Donner Party a couple hundred years later. Yes, there's already some Donner parallels Mm -hmm. here, and I imagine there will be more Mm. as we go along. They ate the seven horses owned by the colony, and then sadly, any pets like dogs and cats. Oh my god, and on on Derby Day next year, they had nothing to wear their hats for. (laughs) And then they started with mice and squirrels and other small wild animals. They were doing literally everything they could, but even these desperate rations were running out. Squirrels, you're probably... You're, you, they were already probably eating squirrels, right? Wouldn't you think you're, yes. you're hunting them with the... But this is just some of the only like scarce game they could get, especially in winter. So with the rations running out and any kind of regular, not uh, irregular, other meat, um, they began to eat each other. (sighs) And here we are. As they say on last podcast on the left, that's when the cannibalism started. (laughs) Yeah. Percy wrote that some, quote, licked up the blood which had fallen from their weak fellows. And others had resorted to digging up dead corpses out of graves to butcher for meat. Most Mm. of the accounts of cannibalism at Jamestown are basically like this. Starving colonists digging up the bodies of those who had starved or died of disease or at the hands of the Powhatan Indians and mining those bodies for food. How hungry are you behind those walls before you dig me up? Before I dig you up? I think it would be different if it was you. I don't know. I, I'm more. I'm much more likely to to eat someone else than like you or someone in my family. Like if it's just, you know, you got to dig Lord me- Featherington or whatever. I'll dig him up first. You got to dig me up or eat Poe. What's the kill Poe to eat him? Yeah, oh, I'm digging you up, baby. Good. I don't think I could ever do that. Well, I think of it like being an organ donor. I want my body to do some good after I'm gone. Yeah. I mean, I would feel the same way. Once I'm dead, and it doesn't really matter if it helps keep my loved ones alive. Um, sure. Eat it up. If you're not starving, <laughs> I'd love for you to feed me to Poe, actually. <laughs> no, I don't want him to develop a taste, taste. for blood. <laughs> so, yeah, so most of the accounts are that people were digging up corpses to uh, eat the meat. Oh, see, I was nervous that this would be like a murdering people to eat each other which there was a little if i remember correctly a little of that in the donner party well i'm trying to get to it sean (laughs) there was one account that was an outlier colonists later told a story of a man who had killed his pregnant wife 
with the explicit intent of eating her. His pregnant wife. Mm -hmm. Later leader of the colony, Thomas Gates, said that the man had taken great care to butcher his wife and salt the meat to preserve it. Well, you got to do that. It's A wife is a lot of meat, and <laughs> you're going to get through, you know, we're not talking about a couple of dinners here. That that might preserve you through a month, two months, might get you through the winter, uh, especially, yeah, no, you're, you're going to want to Stop thinking about how much meat a wife is. You got to salt that wife. <sighs> John Smith later jokingly, I guess, wrote that, quote, whether she was better roasted, boiled, or carbonadoed, I know not. Zing! But of such a dish as powdered wife, I never heard of. Great little sense of humor on John Smith here. Who would have thought? Well, it's easy for him. He didn't have to deal with any of this because he never went back to America. So he just went to England to write and become famous. Yeah, because it sucked here. Yeah. He, everyone was starving and dying of dysentery or cannibalism. Uh, Too much wife salting. Carbonadoed, um, in his phrasing, means barbecued. So that was just oh. his little, his fun little joke. Was a carbonado a like device for barbecuing, like a grill? I don't know. I mean, I just know carbon. That makes sense. Um, yeah, pe places had to explain what that means. <laughs> I was thinking carbonara. I was like, oh, a nice cream sauce, or yeah. You know, before the summer's over, I really want to get a couple of friends over and have a good carbonata outside. Stop talking about how much meat a wife has. You got to salt that wife, Carrie. <laughs> there was a man who was convicted of this act, said to have killed his wife not out of desperate hunger, but out of hate for her. While on trial, he said that she had died of natural causes, and he'd merely kept her body tucked away for later snacking when things got dire. But he was found guilty and burned alive. Oh, I bet he was pretty salty after that. <laughs> he might have been killed for his meat. I mean, you know. So this was two a two birds, one stone. This was a real twofer for him. He hates the wife anyway. Get her out of the way and uh, sock a little jerky in the old closet. That's what she said. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you sock a little jerky in the old closet? <laughs> Still, despite this, uh, for a long time, historians believe that the claims of cannibalism at Jamestown were fabricated, dramatized. Cannibalism has always been taboo, and perhaps it was something far too awful for even scholars to consider. But it does make sense. I mean, these were truly, truly desperate times. And in these situations, sometimes it's seen that, I mean, it's like a weird morality, as long as you're cannibalizing a corpse ra rather than like killing someone for their meat, it's more acceptable, I guess. Yeah, it's like the Brazilian soccer team. Mm -hmm. It's like the beginning of the Donner Party thing. Mm -hmm. um, desperate times. And again, I would certainly want a friend or loved one to eat. Yeah, my once meat I'm, as long as die. you're not murdering me for my meat, I don't I don't care. If there's a dire situation. As far as I'm concerned, that's spare meat. That's loose meat. <sighs> Stop with, ew, loose meat. That's yeah, loose meat. Ugh. Up until 2012, the common assumption remained that reports of cannibalism were greatly exaggerated. But then we found evidence. The remains of a 14-year-old girl, nicknamed Jane, were found in the area of a 1608 James Fort cellar during an archaeological dig. 
These remains included a mutilated skull and a severed leg bone and were discovered alongside butchered animal bones and other food discarded by the colonists during the starving time, like a butchered horse and dogs. Okay, so this appears to be a butchered human being. Mm-hmm. It was determined by Doug... It was determined by Dr. Douglas Owsley, uh, chief forensic anthropologist at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, that the skull had undergone multiple blows and slices from at least three different sharp-edged metal implements. Owsley stated that these cut and chop marks were made during a concerted effort to separate soft tissue and brain matter from bone. Quote, they were clearly interested in cheek meat, muscles of the face, tongue, and brain, he said. Jane's oh, hair the, was not removed. That's the tastiest part of a wife. Stop with that. Joke. <sighs> Listener, the look on Carrie's face is one of genuine shock. I am concerned. Horror. And just a little hunger. <sighs> the remains underwent months of testing, all of which confirmed the conclusion that Jane's body was a clear victim of cannibalization. The first evidence of survival cannibalism in any European colony in North America at, by that time. Wow. So this was pretty big news when it came out. Um, so big, in fact, that the Smithsonian Institution, along with Colonial Williamsburg and Preservation Virginia, released a public statement to confirm it. Oh. They were very proud of themselves. <laughs> Guess what? They ate folks right here. They basically said that this was the second most meaningful historical discovery um, after finding the fort itself wow. in the area. Jane had likely come with the third supply ships, and examination of her remains indicated that she was about 14, female, and had consumed a European diet of wheat and meat originating from the southern coast of England, which is probably where she was born. It's cool that you can get even, like, you can go that far. The, uh, the beef she ate came from southern England. Yeah, it's wild. Um, it's uncertain who she was or her status, but due to her diet and isotope testing, they figured that she may have been from a high-status family or one of their servants because of the quality of protein she ate. Well, it all the great equalizer, though, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's also uncertain who had eaten Jane. Um, it's believed that she wasn't murdered for her meat, I guess. So all those skull blows are strictly after? Yes. Um... Owsley stated that the cutting had not been done by an experienced butcher, except possibly the chops to the shin bone. There was a hesitancy, trial, and tentativeness in the marks that is not seen in animal butchery. The butcher themselves might have even been a woman, as they had begun to outnumber the men as the starving time went on. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. When you said this... Um... I think women in general just usually have more reserves of fat. Oh, I see. Is that... That makes sense to me anyway. Yeah, that, that makes it harder for them to dodge drug tests as well. Sure. <laughs> uh, Alsley also feels that the cuts on Jane were done post-mortem. There are no un other indications that might lean toward her being killed. And considering that settlers were dying of famine and disease left and right, there likely would have been no need. Unfortunately, fresh corpses were in high supply, and uh, though we don't know how Jane died, it was likely due to famine and disease. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I guess I was just picturing the men and having 
been bigger and stronger and, and so uh, surviving later into the winter, but I guess not the case. Right, and keep in mind, stuff. a lot of them aren't big and strong men. Right. They're, they're fancy boys. Fops. Yes. Um, no matter how Jane died, ending up in the equivalent of a 17th century dumpster is really a horrible way to be sent into the afterlife. In 1610, a small crew of settlers escaped Jamestown on a ship they called the Swallow, which I think was just like a longboat from one of the other ships. Mm. And they arrived in England in spring 1610 to tell those there about the cannibalism. Wow, they crossed the ocean? Mm -hmm. And many couldn't believe it. On Bermuda, throughout much of this time, we still had the occupants of the shipwrecked flagship, the Sea Venture, trying to figure out how the hell to either get home or to Jamestown. Don't go to Jamestown, guys. Don't go to Jamestown. (laughs) This is actually how England discovered Bermuda. It had not been an English colony before this. This shipwreck. Yeah. Over the course of a few months, the survivors of the wreck built two smaller ships from Bermuda Cedar and salvaged from the Sea Venture, called the Deliverance and Patience. Very apt. (laughs) And they left for Jamestown. And they also left two men behind on Bermuda to maintain England's claim to the land. Really? Just two guys? Mm-hmm. I figured, you know, as long as an Englishman has his foot on the uh, land, that's enough. Well, but they could have just called fives on the island, and then as long as they're back within five years. I don't think the Spanish or the Dutch or whoever would have listened to that. You got to respect fives. <laughs> The ships, uh, led by Sir Thomas Gates and Sir George Somers, assumed they'd find a thriving colony once they finally reached Virginia's shores. Instead, they found an emaciated ghost town. Only 60 of the 500 pre-winter settlers had survived. Oh my god. <laughs> and they were all, they were all sniffing the uh, rescuers <laughs> as they arrived. The colony was in ruins. It was practically abandoned. Um, Most of the few dozen remaining colonists were sick or dying. And the deliverance and patients had only carried with them a small food supply, with most of the other supplies having been lost in the wreck. Guys, is is it just me or can you not wait to get to Jamestown? I mean, we we could really use some of that food they've been growing. Yeah, and then the Jamestown colonists must have been like, are you kidding me? Again? A supply ship with no supplies? Finally, a supply ship! And then they're getting off the boat like, we are starving! Fire up the grill, boys! Mm -hmm. At this point, the decision was made to abandon Jamestown. Oh, I thought you were going to say, at this point, the decision was made to eat... uh, (laughs) Abandon all hope. No, eat... uh, What was the boss's name? Fair Fair something? Thomas Gates? Who was in charge of that supply run? Originally, it was Thomas Newport, but I'm not sure if he made it back. I would have thought they'd be sharpening up those forks and knives (laughs) to eat Thomas Newport right there on the beach. Mm. On June 7th, 1610, everyone was placed aboard the ships to return to England, and they began to sail down the James River. But then, a small miracle. In April 1610, Lord De La Warre, origin of the name Delaware... Oh, had left for the settlement six months after the siege and starvation had begun. Interest in the land had increased with the arrival of the desperate colonists and with the popularization of the writings of John Smith. So he did help out in a way. I love I love when interest is built by the arrival of the desperate colonists. People going like, <laughs> you have no idea how bad it is. Well, it was more like, oh, we should probably do something about this. 
Three ships were in Delaware's fleet, uh, carrying additional colonists, a doctor, food, and supplies. They arrived on the James River on June 9th, just in time to inter- intercept the deliverance and the patients 10 miles downstream from Jamestown near Mulberry Island. Wow. In, in light of um, Roanoke, can you imagine if they had pulled up at Jamestown and just the colony's gone? Everybody's missing. <laughs> this shit again. I mean, they almost did that. If they hadn't, if they'd been like different days, you know, if, if the colonists had made it to the Atlantic Ocean or whatever, it would have just been that again. <laughs> Delaware, as the new governor, forced the escaping ships to return to the abandoned colony. He probably felt, I assume, uh, like the failure of Jamestown wasn't going to happen on what was technically his watch. This decision wasn't popular, but they complied because he was in charge. You turn around and just march your little butts back to Jamestown, (laughs) young man. All right. Eventually, a young Englishman named John Rolfe, who had arrived from the Bermuda wreck. This is the guy who Pocahontas marries. Maybe. In Pocahontas 2, the movie. (laughs) He began to experiment with the seeds of the native tobacco from Virginia. Um, Now, this tobacco originally hadn't really been liked by the English, but he kind of hand-bred different strains to become sweeter. And Rolf became the first to commercially cultivate tobacco plants in North America in 1611, with the export of the sweet tobacco beginning in 1612, helping turn the Virginia colony into finally a profitable venture and a new leader in the export biz. And I just heard recently from uh, Mike Duncan, if anybody loves history, Mike Duncan's podcasts and books are great. Uh, Mike Duncan just recently on something, some podcast or another, told me that Told you specifically. Yes, specifically me. (laughs) Early colonies in the South had a hard time still getting off the ground uh, because sometimes the settlers would just get too excited about growing tobacco because it was selling Mm -hmm. for so much money and they wouldn't plant enough or like any food. Just like, we'll trade for that later. And then the same thing would happen. Yep. Yep. The the good thing is that they probably had more supply ships and, and more full supply ships coming in because they were finally profitable. So it's, it's all a mess. In 1614, John Rolfe married Chief Powhatan's daughter, the Native American princess Pocahontas, as you mentioned, um, and she had converted to Christianity and taken the name Rebecca. She and John had a son named Thomas, which reinstated peace between the Powhatans and the European settlements, and through uh, which most of the first families of Virginia almost 400 years later can trace back their lineage to both the Native Americans and the English-born Jamestown settlers. Wow. Mm-hmm. And the rest, as they say, was history. Well, all of that was history. Everything and, was and history. And also the rest. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's history. So that's the story of America's first horror, at least that we know of, Um We don't know exactly what happened at Roanoke, but I'm sure it was horrible in its own way. So, yeah, we um, we had to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps, then eat those bootstraps, (laughs) then eat each other uh, (laughs) after then pick each other up and eat each other. Yeah. But eventually we started selling that sweet, sweet tobacco. And here we are today. Yeah. Nothing bad has ever come from the sale of tobacco. So that's great. Or America. (laughs) Or (laughs) <laughs> or America. Um, all right. Is that going to... Um, 
it's such a chilling story. I didn't realize, I, I think probably many of our listeners have never heard this before. Uh, where It wasn't really a popular thing for them to go over in like your fourth grade colonial America right. social studies class. Right. I mean, but it is like a Donner Party situation, but mm-hmm. probably more people. Yeah. And I, at like a more crucial time for our history, probably. 60 of 500 people remaining. I mean, aside from the ones that were killed by the neighboring tribes, that's a lot of people dying from disease and starvation. It's was, horrific. Was the guy who killed his wife sentenced by the colonists, like tried then? Yes. So things hadn't totally broken down. Like they were still, uh, society like, was still well, chugging along. You can't kill someone for their meat. You have to wait till they die first. But they had a trial. Mm-hmm. Dang, you know. They managed to In pull so it much together as a, for... trial, a trial they would have had, but you know. I don't know if, how logically they were thinking in general. How do you plead? I'm so fucking hungry. <laughs> Pretty much. I plead for chicken. Or just a... Give me just one salted chunk of my wife. <laughs> Stop with the wife meat. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. We had a shorter than usual main episode today because we have two big news stories to cover. So let's get to it during this supersized edition of True Crime Time. Ripped hot from the, just really ripped from today's headlines uh, this week. Yeah. (laughs) From last week, we complete our dissection of the Murdaugh family murders and uh, their whole saga, I guess. Complete or just set up something that you're definitely going to have to cover (laughs) in a future episode? Definitely a future episode, this whole thing, for sure. Um, And it's, it's still ongoing and developing, so... Just to remind you, the Murdaugh family is a South Carolina legal dynasty with many powerful ties in the area, thanks to their recognition dating back to Murdaugh's great-grandfather through father, all serving as the top prosecutors in the region from 1910 through 2006. Mm. So they are fancy boys, much like some of the Jamestown settlers. They have a a huge dining room somewhere in their house with portraits of Uh, All the male members of the family. Never the female. We left off last week with a series of very unfortunate events. Son Paul Murdoch... Which is my least favorite Lemony Snicket book. Sorry, go ahead. Son Paul Murdoch, boating under the influence and causing the death of a 19-year-old girl in 2019. Patriarch Alex Murdoch finding his wife Margaret and Paul himself shot outside of their home in an apparent murder in June of this year. The death of Alex's father, Randolph Murdaugh III, 
Alex's resignation or probably being forced out of his law firm and then his shooting by a roadside early this month. Alex survived, pledged to enter rehab, and many mysteries still abounded around the mysterious deaths, the strange shooting, and how all of it could relate to other unsolved murders in the Hampton County, South Carolina area. Yeah, and he made a weird statement that seemed to suggest his alcoholism had left, led to his wife's murder. His addiction. Um, I think there was some guilt in the statement, but we'll get there. Alex Murdaugh admitted to police last Monday that he had planned his own assassination. Sorry? <laughs> as he this was, is not what I expected you to say. Yeah. As he was uh, able to, you know, admit this, uh, it clearly didn't go the way he had expected. Failed. Murdaugh told investigators that he asked former client Curtis Edward Smith, 61, to kill him so that his surviving son, Buster. Yes. Buster. Real, uh, yes. The bunny. Could, oh, we did this last week. Yeah, we did. Could collect a $10 million life insurance payment upon his death. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, Smith only left Murdaugh with a superficial gunshot wound to the head, because apparently those do exist, and also a lot of suspicion. Smith was arrested and charged with assisted suicide, aggravated assault and battery, and insurance fraud in connection with the September 4th shooting. Assisted suicide is a charge? In some states, yeah. And I think in others, you have to get... Um, Murder? No. You have to get permission, I guess, to be like a doctor that carries out these things. I think Oregon, it's legal. Oregon, sorry. Um, Smith admitted to being at the scene and getting rid of the gun, but it's not clear at this point if he has a lawyer. Murdaugh, for his part, has not yet been charged, but family lawyer Dick Harputlian, <laughs> also a South Carolina state senator, said on NBC's Today show that he did expect Murdaugh to be charged with a crime, though he emphasized that Alex had nothing to do with the killing of Margaret and Paul Murdaugh. I don't mean to laugh at Dick. Um, it's just that he Harputlian. has a funny name. Yeah, a little poot. <laughs> Dick Harputlian. Oh, that's great. Apparently, Murdaugh had concocted the murder plan after trying to stop abusing oxycodone and suffering from massive depression, which something that's understandable, at least the latter, after the murders of two of your close family members. Yeah, and getting off oxycodone will cause some, some pretty severe depression, too. Mm. Murdaugh had wrongly believed that Buster would not receive any life insurance payout if he died of suicide, which I assume he considered. So he asked his former client, Smith, to take care of it. Smith was also apparently Murdaugh's oxy dealer. And Murdaugh had allegedly misused millions of dollars of the PMPED or pimped uh, law firm money to pay for the painkillers. Great. So these guys are played by Steve Martin and <laughs> Danny DeVito. Not looks wise, but maybe in action. Yes. Danny DeVito is the... Um, Alex Murdaugh to me looks more like... Um, oh, what's that guy's name? Uh, the one who's like, my fucking cat. Ma, look at the cat. Michael Rappaport? Yeah, he looks like that to me. Okay. Back up the truck. Oh, yeah, he kind of does. Okay, sure. Or maybe a younger Ed Begley Jr. So we get Michael Rappaport to play him in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Danny DeVito is this... Uh, Sure. I mean, any Danny DeVito in a movie is better. Incompetent would-be hitman. 
We mentioned last episode that the unsolved case of the murder of Stephen Smith was reopened in connection to the Murdaugh investigation. Now another case has been reopened, too. In 2018, Murdaugh family housekeeper Gloria Satterfield had died in their home due to what was attributed in court documents to a trip and fall accident. Okay, what has led it to be reopened? Well, Hampton County Coroner Angela Topper said that the death was never reported to her office and no autopsy was conducted, which was unusual. Oh, is it? Oh, is that unusual? (laughs) It seems all of the Murdaugh drama has stirred up this accident again because lawyers representing Satterfield's son came forward to say that they had not received any of the $505,000 settlement for them. They had not received any of the $505,000 settlement their previous lawyer had reached with Alex Murdaugh after Gloria's death. $500,000 settlement? $505,000. For a slip and fall? I mean, a fatal slip and fall. You know. What the hell happened? (laughs) In that case, the trip and fall explanation was used for Satterfield's death, but Coroner Topper found that the death had been listed as natural on Satterfield's death certificate, which is inconsistent with an accidental fall. You would say, accident? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Misadventure? (laughs) Well, unless maybe she died of like a heart attack, right? But it was caused by precipitated by this well fall. the coroner is not a fan of this um one of the lawyers for the Sattersfield children had apparently been close to alex murdaugh which was not disclosed to the kids before the trial hmm. so ronnie richter one of the new Sattersfield lawyers said in an interview that he had not expected the state police to open an, a criminal investigation but he was glad Ms. satterfield's death was getting a deeper look I can't recall a case that required sunlight more than this one, he said. Wherever it comes from, it's a good thing. Hmm. We'll be sure to keep you updated on this bizarre series of events. And recently we found out that HBO is making a documentary about this whole saga. So I'm sure that'll be popcorn viewing in a a year or so. Carrie, give me some rife speculation about the the maid. I don't know. I have to read more. Like, I don't really know the details. I don't think it's really known to the press either. Um, But the wife and the daughter really were killed? The son. The wife and the son really were killed? They were shot execution style. I... I, This is just me speculating. So take that as you will. Uh, Don't sue me, anyone. I think Alex Murdoch was probably into some stuff. Whether like it's owed some money, I think he certainly owed some money. Um, he was already stealing from his law firm and was basically forced out because of it. Uh, how this might relate to Gloria Satterfield's death or the death of the 19 year old kid that was found nearby? I mean, It seems like certain details that the police have found from this investigation have led them to reopen that one, which was never solved. Yeah. How does that connect? I have no idea. So strange. I cannot wait to get to the bottom of all this. And uh, we will be waiting with bated breath for more details to bring our listeners. Mm -hmm. Now on to the other huge crime story this week. 
that of the tragic disappearance and death of 22-year-old Gabrielle Gabby Petito. Yeah, we talked about this. I'm I'm nervous to even cover any of this because um, this is ha- this is like ongoing and, and yes. very very topical. Um, so I'm doing a just the facts, ma'am, right now. Yeah. All right. So uh, uh, what happened to this poor girl? Well, just for our listeners, if you've checked in with the news or watch TV or even have been on TikTok this week, you've seen Gabby's case all over every channel. Unfortunately, it hasn't ended the way that the Petito family and the whole country would have hoped, but it also hasn't really ended at all since it is so current. Um, Now, we didn't want to do a whole episode on this because, again, with the speculation that we were just doing with the Murdaws and everything, um, it's just too fresh. It'd be irresponsible right now. Yes. So right now I'm just going kind of through a timeline of events just because it is the news story. (laughs) This week and it's true crime. Um, but we're, you know, trying to be as respectful as possible. We just want to bring the information to those that listen to the show. In June 2021, a couple months ago, Gabby and her fiance of one year, Brian Laundry, left on a cross-country road trip in Petito's white Ford van from Blue Point in Suffolk County, Long Island, New York. So this is an area I know is about halfway between where I went to college and where my family has stayed in the summers, but most everyone else would know as the location of Blue Point Brewing Company. Right. Gabby and Brian, 23, had been visiting her family for her brother's high school graduation, and then they left Blue Point around July 4th for their road trip intending to visit state and national parks across the western United States. And you did something kind of similar to this uh, a few years ago, right, Sean? Well, my senior year of college... Uh, oh, I, that too, yeah. I spent a semester in L.A., so I drove with a couple of buddies across the uh, country. Is that what you're talking about? I was talking about when you went with your mom and sisters. Oh, yeah, that was just the... Because um, a lot of those locations are going to come up in this story. That was just the national parks down in Utah. So it was um, uh, Canyonlands, Arches... The ones outside of, uh, we hit, we started in, that trip we started in Vegas and we drove down into Moab, Utah, and along the way we hit Zion National Park and Arches and Canyonlands, uh, all that kind of, it's funny starting with adult Disneyland <laughs> in uh, Nevada and then going to the opposite of that and all the kind of most natural beauty <laughs> in the world is right over there in Utah and Arizona. Yeah. Gabby, a content creator, posted many pictures and videos from the trip until her disappearance. She showed her and Brian stopping in places like Monument Rocks in Kansas, Colorado Springs in the Great Sand Dunes, and Zion National Park in Utah. She posted from Canyonlands National Park on July 31st, and then she didn't post again for 12 days, which was unusual for her routine on this trip. On August 12th, she returned to Instagram to post pictures from the Arches National Park in Utah, but on this same day, she was also encountered by a police officer called to reports of disorderly conduct. So they were probably staying in Moab, right? Yeah, I mean, they're going all around. Right, but yeah. A 911 call had come in saying that while driving by uh, a white van with Florida plates, same as uh, Gabby and Brian's, the driver had spotted a man slapping a girl. And from the description, it seems like the van and the two of them were on the side of the road. Like, they were probably outside of the car. So car passes 
white van on side of the road, man slapping a woman and calls the police. Mm-hmm. The That's dri- a good Samaritan. I would expect most people to mind their own. Um, and I'm not saying like he should have minded his own, but most people oh, I probably called the police so freaking fast. But a, lo- a lot of people would have just turned back to those uh, street signs. Well, this driver stopped. The couple ran up and down the sidewalk. The man hit the young woman, I think, again. And then the two hopped in the car and drove off. So when the police arrived, and you could see the whole body camera video, the white van is parked by the side of the road, and he approaches them and confirms the name of Brian Laundrie, who is driving, and Cabby Petito, who is crying at the time. The two were described as having gotten into a physical fight following an argument. I think Brian had scratches, things like that. Brian told police that Gabby had gotten frustrated after trying to start a blog for hours, and he got into the van with dirty feet, and I guess this set her off. Her van? Their van. I mean, they kind of had fashioned it so they can sleep in it and do things like that for this trip. At that point, the couple had apparently gotten into a fight. Gabby can be seen tearfully explaining her anxiety and OCD to officers, while Brian asks police not to press charges and says that everything's fine. Police had them separate for the night, taking Brian to a hotel and giving Gabby the keys to the van. Officer Daniel Robbins wrote in his report, After evaluating the totality of the circumstances, I do not believe the situation escalated to the level of a domestic assault as much as that of a mental health crisis. And no charges were filed. Neither of them wanted to file charges. What's your read on the situation? Mental health crisis? I guess it depends on whether he slapped her or not. I'm sure he did. (laughs) Um, But she might have hit him too. Seems like there was a fight. The next day, Brian posts pictures on Instagram from the Arches and Moab. And a week after the police altercation, Gabby posts once more with a picture of her and Brian inside the van. It's unclear where they were at this point. Um, There's no geotagging or anything. Did she usually geotag? I wonder. A lot of the time she it would say like Arches National Park, like, you know, the little location tag that you can do on Instagram. Yeah, it's just it's someone could have posted from her phone after she was. Well, we'll talk about that. At this point, it seems like she's still posting. On the same day, she also posts her first and only YouTube video for the aforementioned blog, showing the couple's relationship and travels. On August 25th, she posts her final Instagram post, a photo of her in front of a butterfly mural that's known to be north of Salt Lake City, Utah. And in it, she's holding a knit pumpkin with the joking caption, Happy Halloween, because it's August. This is around the same time that Petito's family told police that they had last been in contact with Gabby. Before the last communication, she was believed to have been in Grand Teton, Teton? Teton. Teton National Park in Wyoming. Now, to be fair, August is when Halloween starts in this house. <sighs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it never, it never leaves. On August 27th, a video was taken by Jen Bethune in Teton County of a white van with Florida plates parked in some kind of overgrowth at the side of the road. And this is more in a wooded area. Why was she taking a video of a random van? I think she was filming while she was driving. Like she had one of the, maybe one of those dash cameras. I'm not sure. August 27th is also the date of the last texts between Petito and her mother that the family believes were genuinely from Petito. Here we go. 
They ended with a message from Gabby reading, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. Stan is what Gabby called her grandfather, but the message kind of left Gabby's mother with some concern. She felt it was odd. On August 29th, Miranda Baker and her boyfriend uh, said that they thought they had picked up Brian Laundrie. No, they didn't know who he was at the time. In the early evening as he was hitchhiking in Coulter Bay, Wyoming. No van, no girlfriend. No. Um, and she said she stated this in September uh, in a TikTok video, but she had already reported the incident to police. Laundry had apparently told them he'd been camping at a site outside Grand Teton National Park alone, though he did mention his fiance and her van. Baker didn't realize who the hitchhiker was until later during all of this social media fracas, um, seeing the videos of him and kind of putting two and two together, like, oh, that's that weird guy that we picked up. Once Laundrie found out Baker and her boyfriend were going to Jackson Hole instead of Jackson, he got agitated, asked that the vehicle stop, and got out near the Jackson Dam. Do you know what? Let me out. Let me out. I gotta get to Jackson Hole. It's a weird situation, so I totally believe her seeing this face and being like, oh my god, that was the guy, you know? Yeah. On August 30th, the Petito family received their last text from Gabby's phone, but they doubt that she wrote the text herself. And the message reads, No service in Yosemite. That's it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. On September 1st, Brian arrived back in the couple's town of Northport, Florida with the white van, but without Gabby. Now, why would he have had to hitchhike? I don't know. We know that on the 27th, the van is around the Teton Park. Um, and then the 29th, he's hitchhiking. Maybe him and Gabby split up at some point, And he was trying to find his way back or he had done something. And I don't know. It's weird that he has the van for sure. I don't know how to explain that. Um, but he gets it back at some point. She's reported missing by her parents on Long Island on September 11th, with the van being processed for evidence by police that same day. So a couple weeks go by in between him getting back to Florida and them reporting her missing. Maybe they were trying to contact her um, in between then. Maybe, I'm not sure if Brian had like made up some story, like maybe they had tried to contact him and he was like, oh, her phone broke or whatever. I don't know. You're she still... report. They reported on September 11th. How many days do you wait on that? My mom would wait uh, two hours, but <laughs> I'm not going to blame the family at all. I don't. I don't know what happened in those two weeks. I don't know what explanations he gave them, if any. So I don't know if maybe sometimes she would go off the radar for for periods of time. So I'm not going to speculate on that. And that's just two hours since the last time she heard from you. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Laundrie refused to talk to police or the FBI, and on the 15th, he was officially named a person of interest in Gabby's missing persons investigation. And the investigators, I think, did a cursory search of the Laundrie home. The Laundries finally spoke to police on September 17th without Brian. That's because they reported to them that 
day that Brian was missing, claiming that they had last seen him Tuesday the 14th. He said, apparently, uh, he was going to the county park called the Carlton Reserve, and and then there were, like, several searches for Brian in the area, but no discoveries were made. Searches were also underway in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, the last place Gabby was known to be. Then, on this past Sunday, the 19th, there was a tragic breakthrough. Law enforcement found a body in Grand Teton that they believed to be Gabby. Autopsy results confirmed soon after that the remains were of Gabby Petito, with Teton County Coroner Dr. Brent Blue ruling the manner of death to be a homicide in his preliminary findings. The cause of death is still pending the final autopsy results, but I assume it's clear enough that he was able to see that it was murder. Petito's remains were found in an undeveloped camping area in Bridger Teton National Forest on the eastern edge of Grand Teton National Park. Laundry, for his part, still remains missing at the time of this recording. His parents were escorted by law enforcement from their home yesterday, September 20th, and due to some of their stories not really adding up, it may result in a obstruction of justice charge for members of the Laundry family. Oh, they'll be hit with obstruction for sure. And um, once like, he- why would you let him go hiking when you know this is all going on? Did he even go hiking? No. I'm sure we'll find out soon. That was around the time when the parents reported Gabby missing, right? The 11th, she was reported missing. And on the 14th, he goes camping? Supposedly. No, he felt the noose tightening. He's on the run. We would... Listen, this is still a developing story. So with all respect to all of those involved, this seems an awful lot like this guy murdered Gabby, right? Yes. Yes. Um, From his actions... Yeah. I think the the main question now is where is he? Um, If he did go into the reserve... I mean, I think it's possible, but... Could he have maybe killed himself? Or um, is he a- actively on the run? I don't know. Uh, and I'm not going to speculate anymore. Because over the last week especially, social media has been in a frenzy hypothesizing on Gabby's disappearance and assumed then confirmed murder. Um, now, Gabby was very active on social media. She's a beautiful, young, blonde, white girl. Um, it's one of those cases where it just kind of captures national attention, but it wasn't even just the news. I think a lot of people on social media, content creators and influencers and stuff maybe identified with her in that same sphere. It felt like one of them. Well, and if you're in that world, even just the people who are fans of yours, I think feel feel like close friends. mm -hmm. It certainly got grotesque like entertainment uh people reacting like reaction videos to the news that she was found dead things like that um in relaying the facts of the case to you today we wanted to be able to give our listeners the timeline of events without all the theories and commentary uh because this case is still so current and painful for the families and loved ones involved but we did think that our listeners um 
who know that we do true crime news whenever it comes up did deserve an explanation, at least as best as we could put together of the timeline of events so far. We hope that Gabby and her family find justice and answers will be found. Uh, and when they hopefully are, we'll be sure to let you all know. So rest in peace, Gabby. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Don't forget to screenshot your five-star reviews and share with us on social media for your chance to win a gift straight from us. This week, we wanted to give a special shout-out to one of our favorite shows and friends of the podcast, True Crime Campfire. True Crime Campfire is a podcast hosted by Katie and Whitney, who roast murderers and marshmallows around their storytelling campfire. In season one, they took a deep dive into the case of the Puppet Master and the Prince of Darkness, a season-long exploration of the most bizarre murder case you've never heard of. In season two, they expanded to covering a different true crime story every week, mixing meticulous research with comic relief and seamless storytelling into one delicious s'more of a crime podcast. Recent episodes include an interview with Deborah Newell, whose life with John Meehan inspired the podcast and miniseries Dirty John, and the 2017 disappearance and murder of Martre Coles. You can find True Crime Campfire, just like us, wherever you get your podcasts, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at True Crime Campfire and at TC Campfire. And come join us on Patreon, where we've got lots of fun things going on, and lots of fun ways you can support the show. Uh, we do have a little bit of extra content up there every month, every couple of weeks, for um, our our biggest fans to kind of keep up with us. Uh, Carrie and I just did a fantasy draft of all of the um, murderers, monsters, and weirdos we've covered on this podcast so far. So that was a lot of fun uh, last week. We got a little more roast to roast am coming next week if you liked that um so yeah get at us on patreon uh, we want to give special thanks to our uh, top tier patrons nate curtis sean o'donnell jared chamberlain maria ferrante robin mccabe comfy mike alex nakutis ryan regan and christy atchison thank you so much guys see you next thursday Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and if you want to check Kyle out, you can check out the YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. He talks about pop music intelligently. This has been a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.